right, Luke, I was pretty thrilled when I saw that you sent me a clip from GB News, the home of the Dinosaur Hour. We're going to watch this clip together and uh, we're going to we're going to see what it is. Well, I think what's going on is that the king, I'm speculating, but the king is a great fan, is always promoter of alternative medicine. He would not be one for chemotherapy. He's always argued against it. He's a great believer in natural herbs and potions and things like that. So my guess is that at the moment he's taking advice from a man called Michael Dixon, who he's championed for many years, who is who headed his own, uh, the, the King's uh, Natural Alternative Medicine Institute, uh, discredited by many people. But the King is a great believer in it. And I be—I was always last night. I was very surprised that people kept on saying, "Well, he's going to have chemotherapy or radiation or mm, the rest of it." Mm. You know, he doesn't believe in it. He does not believe oh, in it. It's a risk. I find <clears throat> it's a risk. And I think going to Sandringham is where he wants to take these alternative medicines Interesting in, in, in a quiet way. <laughs> Okay, I think uh, that's uh, the key information there. Remember, that's a royal expert talking on GB News. Yeah, to... quite, quite approvingly, I'll just note, to uh, yeah, to one Nigel Farage. You may perhaps you've heard of him. And, uh, you know, you're in your 80s. Uh, chemotherapy, uh, probably a very unpleasant experience for a man in his 80s. But this also feels pretty consistent with the sort of thing that a monarch would think, wouldn't it? You know, I'm part of a God-granted lineage Surely natural solutions will will shine favorably upon my cancer. Yeah, I don't know, Will, you're saying this with a, a smirk on your face, but I mean, I'm fully on board, particularly after the movie we watched this week. I'm fully on board with Charles' opposition to the medical establishment and his embrace of, what was the turn of phrase there? Natural herbs and potions. Nobody dismisses the king's potions in my presence, okay? He's going to go into hospital. He's going to have the king's potions, and uh, there's going to be a guy with googly eyes and a little red nose, and... And uh, he's going to come out fine. Wouldn't it be awful if King Charles had to endure the dehumanizing process of bureaucracy in the medical industry? I ask you, whatever happened to empathy? Whatever happened to patient-doctor connection? Hopefully the king will not be subject to that at the uh, bleeding, broken NHS. Well, welcome back to Michael and us, everyone. Uh, I am not usually one for showing our workings or breaking the fourth wall in this show. We don't usually like to show you our drafting table. But in the case of this one, we had a little bit of a debate beforehand. This being a very special week. This is episode 499, which means the next one will be episode 500. So, you know, it's kind of a special week. We wanted to do something fun. And we had a little bit of a debate. Uh, I, at one point in this conversation, advocated for the movie Castaway, uh, where, you know, we, which we've had a lot of people agitating for over the years. I am firmly against this. Look, if Luke wants something, he usually gets his way. That's been the tragic precedent on this podcast <laughs> until now. Will, Will said uh, in response to this, I mean, this perfect suggestion as as like a super majority of our listeners understands and my esteemed co-host does not. He said, ah, a turgid Tom Hanks Oscar drama from 20 years ago. I'd rather watch a snuff film. Those were his words That's exactly. What I said. And, and you pulled out your phone and you made a note of and my you know exact, we, and I and, stand by and those and you know, sentiments. And we, Show me a beheading video before you show me a fucking Tom <laughs> Hanks Oscar movie from 25 years ago. And because Will was not having any of Castaway, didn't want to do Castaway. Instead, we watched a turgid uh, Robin Williams film, saccharine dramedy bullshit from, I don't know, 25 years ago, whatever. And, and this this is kind of what tickles me a little more. Like, if you tell me it's a, it's a Tom Hanks prestige film, I say, no thanks. If it's Robin Williams, I say, oh, that's catch. Folks, I will tell you, I don't say it lightly. We've watched a lot of bad movies on this podcast, and I don't want superlative condemnations of them to become shtick, but this is one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my life. Yes, agreed. I resent the late Mr. Williams for every for his, his, <laughs> his involvement in it. I resent my co-host for suggesting it, and I resent all of you for listening to this episode, for knowing what this movie is. You know that thing in movies? when somebody has something like embarrassing happen to them and they go to their local newsstand and they buy up every edition of the paper and throw all of them out so that nobody can see whatever the embarrassing news is. Can we do that for every copy of this movie? I would like for this movie to not exist. I think it is a pestilence that should be eradicated from the face of the earth. Yeah, there's been a lot of, you know, hand-wringing over David Zaslov canceling these movies and destroying them for a tax write-off. And can we do that with a movie that came out in 1998 <laughs> is, is that okay 
and I think money should be no object. I think the government should be prepared to grant as big a tax yes. write-off as necessary. This is, this is a public to, good. To burn the negative <laughs> of Patch Adams. To do some sort of, like, put your best technology of it, some sweep of every digital file. Yes, there should be, there should be like, uh, forensics people to go through the internet and, like, delete everything to the extent that you can't even get it on the Wayback Machine. Like, this is the best kind of Orwellian. We need to <laughs> remove any trace of not just this movie but also the actual patch adams and <laughs> and you know what just to be safe any evidence of the period of robin williams career between 1996 and 2004 you know just anything in that radius i don't think you're going to hear anybody complaining about that let's just get rid of it patients don't need a friend they need a doctor on december 25th hello my name is dr the world will discover Oh, there you are That laughter truly is You want to be a clown? Go join the circus The best medicine Robin Williams I want to learn about people I want to help them with their troubles That's what I do But you suck at it Patch Adams Donner, party of 50 Based on a true story Rated PG-13 Starts December 25th It's Patch Adams, folks This is the Patch Adams episode We're bringing back laughter <laughs> Yeah I think we've all had experiences In the hospital sector you know, we've all experienced the frustrating bureaucracy, the dehumanization of the medical industry, uh, but we have a solution. Um, what if you put on a goddamn clown nose? Yeah, you know, what if you're lying in your bed at night on the precipice of death, thinking about your own mortality, thinking about the, you know, horrible the, pain the that you're feeling? The unfairness, the unfairness of it that you have been diagnosed in the prime of life. And as you look down across your, you know, frail body, as you lie on the hospital bed in the bleakness of the evening hours, a man with googly eyes and a red nose pops up where your crotch is between your legs and starts laughing and you are instantaneously cured of your illness. No, no, no. This is a really funny movie. It's a movie about the importance of laughter, but like any funny movie, it has a place for seriousness as well. So before we get into the movie anymore, I just want to begin with some words of wisdom spaketh by Mr. Williams himself in the uh, film's opening stanzas. Home. The dictionary defines it as both a place of origin and a goal or destination. Boo. And the storm? The storm was all in my mind, or as the poet Dante put it, in the middle of the journey of my life, I found myself in a dark wood, for I had lost the right path. Just some words of wisdom to get us going before the laughter starts. You know, I've been watching Robin Williams movies for a long time now. I'd say he's been with me most of my life, and this is really the pinnacle of a certain kind of Robin Williams movie. You know, we saw it with Good Morning Vietnam. We saw it with Dead Poet Society. Probably we saw it with other movies, too. Mo movies too mediocre to even remember. Movies where Robin Williams is a, a very funny man who enters a not traditionally funny situation. The Vietnam War, an academic institute, in this case, the medical profession. Or if I can just add one more to the list, if you think about what the plot of Hook is, in that movie, his arc is that he's a guy who's grown up and he's no longer Peter Pan and he's become a stuffy adult. But eventually he finds his way back to Neverland and he discovers childhood again. So it's actually all just the same movie, isn't it? Well, he made many movies in which people are self-actualized through laughter. <laughs> laughter is positioned as the knife edge between sanity and insanity. I mean, there is, of course, The Fisher King, in which he is the mad homeless man who liberates the bourgeois shock jock character played by Jeff Bridges. In Mrs. Doubtfire, though, he laughs a little too close to the sun. He brings too much laughter to the home to the point where he is not able to focus on his responsibilities as a father and a husband leading Sally Field to divorce him. Uh, there is even, I mean, I haven't seen this one, but this one, you know, looks like it really takes the cake. Uh, Jacob the Liar, which is um, <laughs> Good Morning Vietnam in a concentration camp. Oh my God. I mean, th that may be too extreme even for us. I don't, I don't know what we can do with that one. Maybe that's actually the apotheosis of this genre. But, uh -huh. but, but this movie comes close. Uh, he comes into a situation that is, you know, not known for its laughter normally. He brings laughter. But all of the Margaret Dumonts in this situation are saying, most unorthodox. <laughs> Yeah, at the beginning of the movie, he's on his way to a mental health facility where uh, none of the staff who are, are, you know, working with people on the verge of suicide, perhaps people with very significant trauma, people who are heavily medicated. Would you believe that they don't like his, you know, dick jokes and his little gags and all the other bullshit that he's doing? Let's pause for a moment on the mental health facility. At the beginning, Hunter Patch Adams, 
Adams. That's quote unquote Patch. Patch is his nickname because he patches the human soul with laughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he arrives at the mental health facility after suffering suicidal thoughts. And when he's there, he finds a place not unlike one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, basically a prison. Uh, the indifferent staff throw, I mean, I mean, tr- <laughs> it's, truly. It's so funny. They they show him his room and he's like, uh, can, can I have my own room? And then they just like mock this guy who's come into this like. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> oh, yeah, call the concierge. Yeah, I, I personally favor the ocean view suite. Uh, <laughs> right. Actually, it seems to me there already is a lot of laughter there of the <laughs> yeah, of the gallows yeah. humor variety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually, the depiction of this facility is also uh, funny because like they put him in a room with an obviously paranoid schizophrenic man played by Michael Jeter. Somebody who's like having night delusions, who, who thinks that the room is full of chipmunks or... Uh, I think it's raccoons, yeah, some ra- kind of a- animals that are trying to attack him or something. You know, who, who's violent, who often needs to be sedated. And look, I don't know the real Patch Adams experience, but I, I do think even a not so great mental health facility would probably like put a guy like that in like a separate area from a guy like Patch who basically at the beginning of the movie just seems to have a case of the blues. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Patch uh, helps things with his roommate pretty quickly because uh, one night when he's having some kind of delusion that's stopping him from being able to use the bathroom, Patch does the healthiest possible thing you can do in this kind of situation. And he concocts an elaborate fantasy where they're in a war zone and he's firing machine guns at the imaginary raccoon. The two of them are comrades in arms and he flips the guy's bed over and uses it as like a trench or something. Definitely the kind of uh, healthy response that, you know, the medical establishment has been trying to snuff out for years. So the guy who runs the mental health facility immediately doesn't care for Patch and his laughter. He's always riling up the patients. And I would be interested in hearing his side of the story because we constantly see Patch in these therapy groups where he's sowing mischief. He's, uh, he's riling a- everybody up. People <laughs> need to be sedated after they're in a room with Patch. He's eliciting some, uh, some larfs, you know? And he decides the mental health facility is not for me. You know, I tried that, but uh, didn't really fit. I'd rather spread laughter. I'd rather bring joy to people. Before we leave the mental health facility, though, there's one scene in the movie. I think, look, this movie is full of just unbelievable scenes. (laughs) This is in the top five for me. There's a guy who wanders around the facility and he keeps holding up four fingers and saying, how many fingers is this? And everyone says four. And he always says, ah, Another idiot. Well, what is this guy thinking? It's clearly four fingers. But but what if I told you that he thinks a little differently? What if I told you that it's the crazy ones who end up changing the world? Yeah, you're only given one spark of madness, folks. There's a scene where this this older gentleman with the four fingers and Patch are up at night and he says, no, look beyond the fingers and patch when he focuses his gaze past the fingers sees an optical illusion of eight fingers and he says oh i understand eight fingers yes you get it there's a little touch in the scene where uh, the guy has like a coffee cup on the table as you know he's uh, finally explaining his riddle that the rest of the world is just too unenlightened to get this eight finger riddle that he's been locked up for oh, by yeah. the establishment. Yeah, can you imagine you're going around holding up four fingers and people are so stupid, so <laughs> narrow minded, so naive that they think you're only holding up four fingers instead of eight. What happened to thinking differently? What you know, this is the kind of radical postmodernism that I simply cannot get behind. The idea that four fingers are actually eight if you blur your vision. Yeah, there are four lights and there are four fingers. But there's a little visual touch in the scene because the eight fingers got guy has a has like a coffee cup like a cardboard coffee cup on his desk as he's explicating his riddle and uh there's a little bit of coffee uh, dripping out from a little hole in the bottom and patch peels off a little sticker from the side of the desk that says virginia state mental hospital or whatever and he patches the coffee cup And perhaps, by extension, he patches his friend's soul with laughter. Now, a man who decides he wants to spread joy and laughter, there are many things he could do. He could become a comedian. He could become (laughs) a um, clown, a a circus clown, uh, a mime, perhaps, (laughs) uh, some sort of jester, uh, someone in the entertainment industry, uh, a podcaster like you and me. That's right. He could could find a village in need of a fool. could hang out near the well (laughs) and you know before people are allowed to draw from the well he could say you must answer me these questions three Uh, but instead he decides to become a doctor for god's sake a doctor 
so so yeah he's straight straight from the mental health facility uh he's been he's been accepted he's been accepted i tell you into medical school and Uh, and we and then this is when this is another scene i like there are many scenes particularly in the first act of this movie where pacha meets various characters who uh, let's just call them the enemies of laughter (laughs) the first one uh a character's name i won't bother to uh tell you it because i don't know it i don't care but but character played by the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman, who in this movie gets to play this uh, stodgy, stuck-up guy. Who would, would you believe it? He's settling into his dorm room for the first time. He's thinking, this is going to be my home for the next four or five years as I undergo, you know, the hardest studying and schooling of my life. And would you believe it when Patch Adams, a 39-year-old man, fresh from the asylum, comes in and says, hey, I'm your roommate, and starts telling gags. Uh, he's he's not laughing. He's how, not yeah. having fun about this. How, folks, how would you like it if you came to college and Robin Williams in <laughs> In the year 1998 was your dorm mate. <laughs> but seriously, like if you've ever like lived in a dorm before and you're like, I don't know, you got there at age like, I don't know, 17, 18, 19, you get there and there's like, oh yeah, uh, your roommate is a 39 year old man. I-, I think the vibes would be a little off, especially if he started telling you jokes that made clear his reference points were things like Babe Ruth and like whatever else he talks about in this fucking insipid scene. Patch Adams <laughs> arrives at medical school and immediately is repelled by many of the ideas in the classroom. He goes to his first lecture where the doctor delivers a lecture on authority. The patient want to trust you, and, and how do you earn trust uh, by dominance? Yeah, that's, that's right. basically what he he's, says. He's giving a sermon where he's like, uh, the patients must never see laughter. Students who show signs of laughter will be instantly expelled. The whole class is looking on admiringly, but Patch, he doesn't like this. No, he's got other plans. He wants to turn around 180 degrees and start sexually harassing one of the only women in the class. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> We keep talking about that scene in The Flash where Michael Keaton has the big bowl of pasta and he says, you know, history is not a straight line. It's a big mess of pasta. Well, there are times when history is a straight line and that's good. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, we see the news and there are all sorts of things that are happening in the news where you think, fuck, history is repeating itself. Do we never learn any lessons? And then there's a movie like this where you have Robin Williams just blatantly sexually harassing a woman. This this is insane. Like, during class, there's a lecture going on. He literally turns himself around like 180 degrees in his chair. Target detected. Just looks looks straight up at her for like a full 15 or 20 seconds. She looks back at him and gives him like a fuck off expression and he just keeps staring at her. Seems like this is a babe who needs some laughter. (laughs) So on the way out, he corners her. He starts following her. Uh, She says in no uncertain terms that she's not interested. But much of the movie is spent with him pursuing this woman who a character name doesn't matter. She's played by Monica Potter, and uh, she is a beautiful young woman. Uh, but but another enemy of laughter. She she hates laughter. You know, a real stick in the mud. Uh, you know, she could really really use a man like Patch to open her up. You know. <laughs> So in the first act of the movie, Patch, scorned by many in his class, but he has one little friend, you know, one little toady who follows him around and thinks he's funny. And yeah, a guy with the unimprovable name of Truman Schiff. And he's always proselytizing his theories about how laughter is good and, and what, whatever happened to empathy, whatever happened to the human connection. Can we, actually, can we pause on this for a second? Because uh-huh. his big problem with medical school is that it focuses so much on, you know, theory and, uh, you know, book learning and that sort of yeah, thing. How, the, how, the, how, the leg bones connected to the hip bone. Right. He's having none of that shit. He says, how come we don't even meet a single patient until third year? <laughs> and the obvious answer to that would be, there's a lot you have to learn before yeah, you, you should, meet a patient. Maybe you should learn about how the human body works before you like put your hand inside of one, like an actual living, breathing human body in need of care. You don't need to learn empathy at medical school because theoretically you've learned empathy all your life. Yeah, you're 39 you, years you, old, buddy. Theoretically, you've learned how to connect to another human being as a human. <laughs> Like when you were four, when you were five. <laughs> there's, a, there, there's a little tidbit of wisdom uh, dispensed by Truman Schiff when they're at a diner or something where Truman says, I'm fascinated by the human mind. You know, we're born so open. We're real individuals. But then something pushes us to conform. So the two of them become fast friends because if there's one thing Mr. Adams does not want to do, folks, it's conform uh, to rules, to professional standards of practice, to basic social etiquette, personal codes of conduct. To, to uh, the social contract, <laughs> yeah, let's yeah, call it that. Yeah, so this scene yeah. is immediately followed by a scene. <laughs> 
Patch says, yeah, yeah, you know, everybody has these like trained responses. Everybody is conditioned to respond to things in a certain way. And we're going to disrupt that. So there's a scene where (laughs) Patch and his friend are out on the street and there's a little old lady walking down the street and Patch like. (laughs) He hangs down like Spider-Man. Yeah, yeah. He hangs down like Spider-Man or like like just for laughs gags or something (laughs) like from a street post. And she's shocked and she's very displeased. Like, oh my God, who's this guy? And Just then, another enemy of laughter. And she walks 10 feet and then she turns around and she looks at him and she kind of chuckles and then she goes off. <laughs> and, and Patch says, this is my point. The first time I snuck up on her and said boo, she didn't like it because uh, we're conditioned <laughs> to not like that. Uh-huh. Uh, but after 10 <laughs> seconds, she realized, oh, that was my conditioning. I actually like being harassed on the street. Now to that, I would say... There is no situation when I would enjoy that. I would I would walk and keep on walking. Have you ever had like an experience where like you're walking down the street or you've walked into like a cafe or something and like there are two people who are like really heavily and in- they're so involved in their bit that they're not looking at their surroundings and they like they bump into you and then for like a few seconds you end up being recruited into their bit you know <laughs> have you ever had an experience like that i hate that i never want to be recruited in other people's whimsy i just want to go about my life uh and this movie is about a man who insists on recruiting unsuspecting unconsenting strangers into his whimsy and deeply informing this movie is the assumption that no matter who you are young old doesn't matter your race your gender your class you will find Robin Williams funny. And Robin Williams in any context funny. And if you don't, you're either not admitting it or you are an enemy of laughter. Yeah, so the first scene of him actually in a hospital is fucking incredible. And you know, Will said, I think it was later in the movie, Will said that this movie is like if somebody set out to make like a really good parody of what a Robin Williams movie is like. And I mean, from this first hospital scene on, it's just... Only the 90s could have possibly produced a movie this irredeemably stupid and cloying. It's unbelievable. The medical students are sort of like, they're they're allowed, I guess, to be in a hospital to observe, but they're not allowed to uh, talk to the patients. So the doctor is, you know, giving some stodgy, you know, discussion of like... Some- Remember, Sorry. these people are just a number. These people are not to be treated as humans. These people are not more important than their illnesses. That's right. And he says, uh, sir, what is the patient's name? And everybody kind of turns around and is like, this reminded me more than anything else of the scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, where Terry Jones as the knight is like lecturing all the villagers or whatever, and they're all stumped by his riddles. And then Graham Chapman as King Arthur stands in the back and is just like, a duck. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So no one, logically, no one can believe it. And then you know, flaunting the medical establishment again, which you know has codes of conduct, if you can believe it, against like a second-year medical student going into the cancer ward where there's children dying. Uh, yeah, he breaks in there and he starts, you know, ga- oh, doing oh gags God. for the kids and leans in pretty close, actually, to kind of like blow kisses at one. Various inappropriate I, things man, are going on. I sure hope that Patch doesn't have the flu, you know, or, or if. <laughs> If he, if, if he even has a cold, it's game over for some of these poor kids with he's, cancer. He's stumbling around the ward. He's picking up the medical equipment. He's, he's doing, dancing with the bedpans. Yeah, just, you know, making it so this uh, expensive medical equipment is, like, unusable because it's no longer sanitary. And then, you know, predictably, some humorless nurse or something comes in and tells him to stop. And then several times this movie made me laugh out loud is when you think the scene's going to be over and he's, you know, been banished from the ward. And she's saying, what are you doing here? What's going on? Humorlessness must be restored. And the camera pans back after Patch has left the ward and you just see through the little like porthole window, she's like going around to all the kids and she's clearly going like, stop laughing, go back to dying. Although, you know, that scene's also funny though, because you can imagine like Patch has just gone in there and made a huge mess. He's riled up all these kids with cancer. <laughs> Who knows how their hearts are doing? You know, some of these, some of these kids with cancer are jumping on the bed, yeah, which and he grabs, they should not be doing. He grabs like one of the, he grabs like an unused like catheter or something and he's just like parading around the room with it. Yeah, and imagine it's like, you're, oh, sorry, uh, you pulled Billy's plug. He's dead now. Imagine you're this nurse who, <laughs> who these kids are under your care, and you have to go in and like get them get them calmed yeah. down, yeah. ready yeah. for the next round of chemo. I mean, for God's sake. There's one other scene in Act One of the movie that I feel compelled to discuss, which is one of the weirdest scenes. Uh, this is, I think, before the hospital scene we've just discussed. But it's when you know Patch and Truman are doing you know some field work where they're you know set 
setting out to discover the power of laughter. And uh, probably the weirdest scene in this movie is when they're at some event that's like, they just kind of crash the Meat Packers Association event or something. Oh yeah, what the fuck is that? And let me tell you, these people know how to have fun. These Meat Packers are not bound by the suffocating mores of the curmudgeonly American medical establishment. And there's a, there's a, there's a part of this there. They just get there, they're laughing it up with people, they're telling various meat-based jokes. And then there's some kind of like race they have. They all have big hams and they all like put them down like these sled runs and would you believe it patches wins because the implication is it's propelled by the power of laughter <laughs> then he goes up on the lectern and gives like a great dictator style speech about like oh well he, he to, gives, like meet well one of several he gives a this. real great yeah. dictator speech at yeah, the end of yeah. the film where he's just riffing on the virtues of meat the guy just never stops this is peak robin williams it's like there are a couple of scenes in every robin williams movie of this era there's there's always the scene that's like a montage of him trying on different voices doing different characters you know like in mrs doubtfire the job interview scene that was in all the trailers <laughs> and there's always at least one scene where he's like on a stage riffing you know doing stand-up <laughs> and it's like let the camera roll and robin williams you know absolutely unleashed god love him i like robin williams we all obviously we all, it goes without saying he's he was you know he was a talented guy he was in good movies not only is this not one of them this is a movie who as i've said already i'm just going to repeat it should be banished from the face of the earth. This movie should be in The Hague. I do think there comes a point sometimes when somebody gets so famous that they lose touch with reality. And I mean, what can you say? This movie actually made over $200 million worldwide, <laughs> which is the only reason really to talk about the, the it. The ultimate indictment of our market system, if there ever was one. So a lot of people for at least a few months in 1998 and 1999 accepted this. <laughs> but the image of Robin Williams coming into a cancer ward a dozen bald children on their little beds and he puts on a clown and also nose. on their little beds and also on their literal deathbeds as well and the the <laughs> incredible like confidence of robin williams this like i am so funny that even in this situation, these kids would be fucking yucking it up at me. I mean, beggars belief. The movie, yeah, yeah, it does beggar belief. I mean, this movie is just, I mean, particularly the second act is just a nonstop sequence, like a never ending wailing guitar solo of sequences that just completely defy belief. Like, like it's shortly after this scene where he's just, yeah, like bursted into this cancer ward where all these kids are on the verge of death. And would you believe it? The people running the hospital don't like it. It cuts to like, oh, like all these medical, all him and all his fellow medical students are in a lab and Monica Potter is, you know, trying to do her lab work. And then, you know, Patch, he's on the floor. He's got like a skeleton, like a fake skeleton they have. And he comes up behind her with the skeleton from the floor and he says, ooh, look at me. I have a boner. And uh, would you believe that none of these humorless medical students, uh, including her, finds this funny? Yeah, that comes right after a scene where Monica Potter and Philip Seymour Hoffman and a couple other students are like doing a study group at the library, getting ready for their exam. Fucking Patch comes and sits at the table and starts yucking it up, starts riffing, start being like, hey guys, what what are you what are you reading your books for? Why aren't we talking about uh, radical empathy? <laughs> why, why aren't we uh, going to clown college? Uh, that's what the patients really need. And I am entirely on Philip Seymour Hoffman's side during this scene. <laughs> you're trying to you're trying to study for a medical exam at <laughs> medical school. And this fucker keeps coming, disrupting your group. And then this is followed shortly after by another scene where <laughs> the setup is it's just, yeah, like a bleak hospital award at night all the lights are off there's a guy who's clearly been in horrible pain played by peter coyote yeah I, I like to imagine that this movie is part of the same narrative universe as bitter moon yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. his wife in that movie like the final act of dominance is to send robin williams into his cancer ward and <laughs> have him right. have him yuck it up that's right so this guy is like literally just like dying in anguish on a hospital bed he's trying to get some sleep and patch adams ambushes him at night <laughs> <laughs> and this is the first nut that Patch hasn't been able to crack. The cancer kids were an easy audience for him, but this guy, he's just sitting there hopelessly thinking of the existential injustice of his horrible fate, thinking about the children who will grow up without a father. And it takes considerable negging on Patch Adams' part. You know, there's a few, he has to he has to make a few attempts. The first time Patch serenades him with a few bars of Irving Berlin, it doesn't go so well, does it? Okay, here's another scene, you know, kind of early in Act 2. Patch Adams, would you believe 
Leavitt, in addition to being like the god of whimsy, is also great at the book stuff too. We never see him study, <laughs> no. but he consistently ranks at the top of the class. He's like 98%. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, his roommate, is so angry about this because he's like, what? I, I, I live with you. I never see you study. Here I am. I come from a medical family. My father was a doctor. My grandfather was a doctor. And the movie is positioning this as like, he's a Nepo baby. Yeah, he's saying basically, you know, Patch, you, you beclown this august profession. If you don't like me, just say it. I don't like you. Why don't you like me? You're a prick and I like you. Because you make my effort a joke. I want to be a doctor. This isn't a game to me. This isn't playtime. This is serious business. I have it in me to be a great doctor. But in order to do that, I have to sacrifice if I want to be better. Better. Better than me. Hmm? I will save lives that could have otherwise not been saved. Now, I could be like you and go around laughing and have a good time, haha, but I prefer to learn because the more I learn, the more likely I'll have the right answer at the crucial moment and save a life. You say I'm a prick? You say I'm a prick? You know, maybe I am, but you ask the average person when death comes knocking at their door whether they want a prick on their side or some kindergarten teacher who's going to kiss their ass. Because when that day comes, I want the prick. I am fully on his side. He's saying, I want to study this stuff carefully because the more of it I know, the more lives I will save. And you know what? I would rather have that ethos and people who are in medical school and who are going to go on to be doctors charged with caring for people and saving life than fucking a guy riffing with Mr. Potato Head glasses on. But because Patch is such a good student academically, in addition to uh, as as a comedian, he is given the august privilege of organizing the welcoming committee for a visiting convention of gynecologists. Friends, you heard that right. There is a convention of gynecologists coming to the medical school and Patch, played by Robin Williams. I smell a gag. Is in charge of the welcoming committee. (laughs) What does he do? There's a shot where they all come off the bus and uh, they're all being led up to the doorway and the the snooty dean turns around and uh uh-oh, Patch has created two big paper mache women's legs around the door. And they they gotta walk through the door, which is strategically placed. Now, of course, you think... That's hilarious, okay? You're a gynecologist. You don't take women's health very seriously. You would love that gag. I, I love, like, that this scene, like, just also doesn't work because it's clearly, like, the middle of the day. So we're just to believe that these big paper mache ladies' legs, which he's, like, I don't know, he's found time in his studies to just build these things that are, like, several stories high. And, yeah, they've just sat there all day and no one's noticed them until the stodgy dean brings up the delegation from Harvard and Yale or whatever. So in the next next scene, you know, Patch is called to the dean's office. And would you believe it? The, the dean doesn't like this. He thinks that you've, as you've said, beclowned the institution. <laughs> I was waiting for the dean to say something like, uh, Patch, uh, several of your fellow students who are survivors of cervical cancer have said that they were very not amused by your joke with the paper mache legs. <laughs> no, but instead he says something like, you know, Patch, you've been censured by the board for the crime of laughter. Your swag is too bad. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, the movie goes on. Uh, there's, well, okay, so many great scenes in this movie. I, like, <laughs> every scene is the best scene of this movie. But... So, sometimes we watch stuff like this and I end up feeling enervated and then we actually have to do the episode. I'm like, God damn it. I can't believe we have to like relive this trauma or whatever. Well, we got to the end of this one. I was like, I want to talk about every scene in detail. This movie kind of defies belief. So Patch is sitting around with some of his friends, as well as some members of the Hoi Polloi at the college diner, just regular Joes, regular folks, patrons, waitresses who are sick and tired of the medical industry and everybody around patch starts talking about the hmos and uh, the insurance companies and they're like oh they they charge you these premiums and uh, it's just a money bilking scam yeah and then then truman schiff is like yeah it's the the insurance companies what make everything so expensive but then patch has a very special intervention to make on his own this scene it's so incredible because unbelievable patch is at this point not listening to this conversation he is zoning out he doesn't care about any of that he looks at the like tissue dispenser or something and he he puts some groucho glasses on it (laughs) and he thinks i've got it i'll create my own hospital that is devoted to laughter. Can, can, I, can I just say, I mean, when there's a scene like this in a movie, it makes me think, okay, I am living in the Truman Show. My life can't be real. Like, this movie isn't a real movie. This has been placed in my reality. 
so that in the fictional world of the show, I can have a podcast where we talk about stuff like this. I mean, I can't like sometimes I feel like movies are hard to deconstruct on this show. Other times it's like whack-a-mole. And this <laughs> and this one falls into the latter category because this movie literally has a scene where for like 15 seconds, it's like, OK, hey, there's a bit of a like a political critique that's emerging here. And then Patch, using the power of laughter, like snuffs it out. And he's like, no, 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 don't look at that. I've got these Groucho the movie, glasses. Like as <laughs> yeah. part of its text yeah, says. Yeah, yeah. Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's right. Yeah. Structures don't exist, but at least we can have laughter. Yeah. (laughs) People are alienated from the medical establishment, but it's got nothing to do with the insurance company. Well, because, you know, the reality that this movie is tapping into and that is presumably the reason why it made over $130 million domestically and much more worldwide is people were frustrated with their experience going to the doctor. They are frustrated with the wait times are so long. It costs so much money and I feel like a cog in the machine. I'm just a number. Well, and, and of course, the extremely uh, crummy and middle-of-the-road uh, Clinton healthcare reforms had just failed a few years before. And so the characters in this scene are saying, well, maybe it's the result of the insurance companies. Maybe capitalism has destroyed <laughs> healthcare. But then Pat says, wait a minute. The movie's just like, no, no, no. Right. What we actually need <laughs> is more entrepreneurial innovation in the health industry. Uh, what if I created my own hospital that is completely deregulated. Yeah, so act three of this movie is that Patch Adams starts a cult. <laughs> yeah, so so Patch, uh, you remember the guy from the mental health facility, the four-finger guy? Well, it turns out he's a rich eccentric. <laughs> Because of course he is. Yeah. And he gives Patch. (laughs) Yeah, there's a scene where he takes Monica Potter out to this like beautiful like vista that overlooks a forest. And he's like, there it is, 105 acres of natural forest. Let's sit here and take it in. And guess what? We're going to clear cut it to build my crank facility. And I just happen to have our, our donor here. I'm sure his grandchildren are happy that he's giving their inheritance to me so I can build my compound out in the woods. So there's this like shack in the woods, basically. Um, (laughs) It doesn't even look insulated. It looks like one room. And this is where they're going to build the Gesundheit Institute, it's called. It's where people can be healed with the power of laughter. And so, you know, there's some (laughs) scenes where they're like painting the walls and they're, you know, uh, hammering some nails. And they're yucking it up because that's part of it, too. That's right. And uh, the next scene is it's in business. People are coming for treatment now we don't really find out what are the boundaries of it does it do chemotherapy is it just kind of like bumps and bruises do they sell aspirin like is there a psychiatrist on board like what is the jurisdiction of its treatment well what's so great about this is the one allusion to actual medicine is that uh, Truman Schiff who is a real Patch Adams zealot and becomes you know the chief lieutenant and enforcer of this crank medical facility out in the fucking woods he's like uh, Patch uh, you know come quick Quickly, uh, we seem to have run out of bandages and iodine. But Patch, like any great innovator entrepreneur, says, oh, but they have oodles of that stuff in the supply room at the hospital. And then they literally go and like do grand theft medicine at the hospital. They steal medicine. (laughs) from the hospital. (laughs) And again, the movie wants us to think this is fine and good. Right. And Patch at this point has not yet graduated medical school. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He's a second year medical student. He is not licensed to practice medicine. Yeah. The the, Dean Walcott has been like, you're not allowed in the hospital anymore. You keep like upsetting the patients. Uh, You came back to that guy after singing him Irving Berlin. You sang it to him a second time and we didn't mention that scene. He he comes back. Dressed as an angel. Comes back dressed as an angel sings Irving Berlin to the guy. We see the guy's family, like, leave. Patch Adams comes in. You know, they're probably thinking, oh, uh, we're going to see him tomorrow night. Patch Adams comes in, sings him Irving Berlin, and then he just dies. (laughs) So Patch Adams literally kills the guy, and wouldn't you believe it, they don't want him back in the fucking hospital. Well, look, Patch has a body count. Several (laughs) people die under his watch, and, um, well, okay. Oh, yeah, we we got to talk about the Monica. Before we get to that, there's a scene with the Monica Potter character that I think is disgraceful. Yes. Where they're out on the porch, and you spent this whole movie, you're like, why does she not love Patch? This this whimsical, clownish man who keeps harassing her, who keeps doing Robin Williams riffing to her. Why is she such a fucking stick in the mud? I was just thinking, how is she able to resist his brooding sexual charisma? Exactly. She must just hate men. 
Well, that is the case because after a few days of Gesundheit Institute oh, running really well, so gross. there was a disgusting scene where Robin Williams and her are sitting on the porch. There's a little bit of sexual tension between them. I think it's fair to say. And she admits. He, he says he says to her, why are we like, what are we? We're just friends who kiss every so often. And she says words to the effect of it's not you, Patch, it's me. When I was younger, I was sexually abused. And because of that, I have always hated men. I have never allowed myself to open up to a man. And they hug. And and, and, and then th- they sleep together. And then they sleep together. Yeah. And that's it. The only, the reason why she became such a serious medical student, why she <laughs> hates hates all men, of course, but, but the funny ones especially, the nice ones, the people who just want to spread laughter, is because she was trained from an early age because of her abuse to hate men. It's rancid. Like, that is genuinely a scene that would not be in a movie today. That would be laughed off the screen. And this looks like a breakthrough in their relationship, but what if I told you that there's been an unstable man who's been coming to Gesundheit Institute? Oh, man, man, this I couldn't believe. I mean, this was another laugh out loud seeing the movie for me because I could tell where it was going. She goes home from her, you know, day shift at the uh, Crank Institute for Alternative Medicines, and there's a message from one of the patients. He says, you know, I could really use someone to talk to. After hours, she shows up. He's at a big mansion. He's playing fur Elise in front of a fireplace. Yeah, he's got big bags under his eyes. He's looking kind of menacing. And I was thinking, you know, if this movie just became Silence of the Lambs at this point, it might be salvageable. Like, if this just became a horror movie, that would be great. But uh, no, there is some horror uh, in that, yeah, he blows her head off with a shotgun, apparently. Off screen. Uh, we don't see it. We don't see it. But this this is interesting because this undercuts the central philosophy of the film because throughout the whole movie, Patch Adams is saying, why is it such a taboo that a doctor have a personal relationship with a client? And in this scene, <laughs> we find out why it's a taboo. One of the many reasons why it's a taboo. She gets an after-hours call from this obviously disturbed individual yeah, saying, and by, by the way, come to my house. Yeah, and by the way, she works at his, like, you know, the Gesundheit Institute, so she's his employee, and because he didn't put any, like, professional codes of conduct or standards in place, she's in a life-threatening situation and dies. He should be in prison for that and also robbing the hospital. You shouldn't <laughs> rob fucking hospitals, people. Patch at this point <laughs> says, well, it seems laughter has betrayed me. It seems empty. <laughs> Empathy has led us astray. It's led to death. And I have blood on my hands. And Philip Seymour Hoffman at this point has been won over by the idea of laughter. And he says, no, Pat, you can't go. The world needs laughter. <laughs> Krusty wants out. <laughs> but no, Robin Williams walks off. And then there's a scene. This movie keeps getting more and more shameless. Every every scene in this movie is the best scene in this movie. Ro- he, Robin Williams has like a, two, a Jed Bartlett, two cathedral style <laughs> scene where he goes out on the vista that they've like soiled. They've cut down all the... They've cut down all the trees to build their shitty alternative medicines institute that's gotten Monica Potter killed. Then he literally does like a, you know, a soliloquy, a a shaking his fist at God scene. He's standing on the edge of a cliff, talking to God, damning God, telling God, send me a sign or else I will fucking kill myself. And then what happens? A butterfly lands. <laughs> yes, he, he he realizes that maybe the world does need laughter. He sees the simple beauty of nature. So at this point, he's back. Forget about Monica Potter. She's dead and buried. She's <laughs> yeah. in the ground. We didn't even mention oh, the scene where he where he <laughs> the funeral. She, he, he's at the funeral and he like kisses her coffin and hugs it like sh- shameless. <laughs> I was hoping that the, uh, this would just become salt burn and he'd take off all his clothes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, he's he's back. He's back in the New York groove. He's ready to laugh again. <laughs> so he gets back to the hospital and there's an old lady at the hospital who said to him that her fantasy was always to be able to swim in a big pool of noodles. Well, he creates the pool of noodles, a very uh, Bunuelian vista of the two of them swimming in their noodle it's, pool. It's disgusting. There's this big pool of noodles. I would say, you know, it's kind of a waste. There might be like, maybe you should have given the noodles to your local food bank. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> did you ever read that Christopher Hitchens book about Mother Teresa. Of the, course, yeah. yeah. The missionary, missionary position. Where much of the thrust of his argument was that her her good works, you know, the hospices that she built were, you know, just a complete fraud. And she would just have like people dying there. And it was like she was making a virtue out of death itself. No actual treatment happened at them. And that's what Patch is doing. Like he's <laughs> yeah. not learning anything about how to treat patients. He's just like, well, listen, 
these patients are gonna die so um <laughs> let's give them a big pool of noodles to swim in let's uh let's do some shtick with the bedpans yes and i'm sorry if this is heavy-handed but just on that point and just to take us back to the you know the 30 seconds in the movie I mean, it's probably less than that it's jet 30 seconds is generous where the issue of you know private health insurance is allowed to come up i mean this movie is the ultimate 1990s clinton era movie because it's it's saying yeah accept the inevitability of death accept suffering <laughs> except that there, there's nothing in be reform. But you know what we can do? We can be a little kinder to each <laughs> That's other. That's right. We, 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 can, we can literally have laughter along with kind of atrophy and decline and death, you know, both of the social and individual kind. So just when you think Patch is back, there's one more complication. The evil Dean, a real John Vernon from Animal House type, finally, finally makes a motion to expel Patch. And what is his case? Uh, it's basically that he doesn't like him. He says, Patch, you're not cut out to be a doctor. You're you're too much of a fool. You, you believe too much in laughter. I mean, look, I could create a whole dossier of horrible things that Patch has done, from stealing medicine to the, the, the film, sexual harassment. The film has established that Patch is a criminal. Yes. <laughs> Patch has a body count. He has literally created an unregulated, illegal <laughs> medical facility that he steals from the hospital to fund. And one of the employees has gotten killed because of <laughs> Several of Patch's, you know, would-be patients have died because of complications from Irving Berlin. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there is finally the big trial scene where Patch is put before the, the board of directors or the, 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 the man, the medical community, basically. <laughs> and, and he's forced to plead his case. And he he launches into a whole monologue about how don't you see don't you see whatever happened to empathy? Why don't we teach kindness? Why don't we teach treating patients as human beings? Which soldiers don't sell yourselves. <laughs> fight for liberty. Death is not the enemy, gentlemen. If we're going to fight a disease, let's fight one of the most terrible diseases of all, indifference. Now I've sat in your schools and heard people lecture on transference and professional distance. Transference is inevitable, sir. Every human being has an impact on another. Why don't we want that in a patient-doctor relationship? That's why I've listened to your teachings and I believe they're wrong. A doctor's mission should be not just to prevent death, but also to improve the quality of life. That's why you treat a disease, you win, you lose. You treat a person, I guarantee you, you win. But truly, what he is preaching are things that you were supposed to learn during basic socialization. Kindergarten. Yeah. <laughs> Do unto others. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And then what happens? I mean, a lot of people have made fun of this scene. We're not treading virgin terrain by bringing up this scene and laughing at it, but it is unbelievable. And and <laughs> uh, this this is the moment when, even though this movie was successful, there was really no way for Robin Williams' career to fully recover from this moment. All the cancer kids are brought out to the back of the room, and they all put on clown noses. Worth noting, all of the cancer kids are able to stand. That would not be the case in reality. So it, it, it's great because it's literally just the ending of Dead Poets Society. By the way, another movie I suggested we do it. Well, it's like, I don't want to. Well, we will be doing some more Robin Williams soon. <laughs> all the cancer kids come and they all stand up on the desks at the back with, you know, googly eyes and big red noses. And then not only is Patch acquitted. Not only is he welcomed back with open arms to the medical community, but the the nine member panel censures the evil dean for daring to question, daring to disrespect the healing power of laughter. <laughs> and then finally, at the very end, uh, it's the graduation day. Everybody's getting their diplomas. Patch gets his diploma. The evil dean is forced to hand him his diploma. And he says, Patch, I'm glad you've finally decided to conform. And Patch says, oh, I sure have. And then it turns out, uh, he's not wearing any clothes under his robe. He moons the audience. You see Robin Williams' ass. He walks off, and there is a fully 10-second freeze frame of his face at the end. I couldn't, I mean, God, I couldn't believe how long that was uh, lingering, just his, like, giant rictus grin. It's like, consider this man. He's just... Really consider he, he's him. Just, he's just ruined, you know, the what for all of his peers is probably, like, the most significant day of their lives. <laughs> because it's all about Patch. In that scene where Monica Potter's character confesses that she hates men because of her abuse, Patch said that he decided to become a doctor <laughs> because helping that patient at the mental health facility was the first time he really felt whole 
And this is the key to the Patch Adams character. All of his radical empathy is actually just extreme narcissism. It's all about him being funny. It's not about anything else. It's not about the kids with cancer. It's not about Peter Coyote with cancer. It's not about the woman with the noodle pool. Uh, it's certainly not about Monica Potter, Six Feet Underground. It's yeah, all at, about him. At the end, this massive pile of bodies behind him, the movie ends, just freeze frame on his face, and he feels joy. <laughs> As a final detail, I'll just note that after the camera has lingered on Robin Williams' beaming face for, for what feels like about a minute and a half too long, the song that plays is uh, a song that I know, I don't know what the, I don't know if this was the original title, a song I know is Faith in the Heart, which is easily the most hated introduction to a Star Trek series ever. It was used on Enterprise, the one with uh, Scott Bakula, the only Star Trek theme, to my knowledge, that has like singing and lyrics in it. One of the most cloying things ever, a perfectly cloying ending to a perfectly cloying movie. Now, this is based on a true story. There is a real Patch Adams who has distanced himself from the movie. Uh, I'm sure the actual Gesundheit Institute is not as cravenly illegal as it is in this film. Um, I'm not really that interested in knowing more about it, because if the real Patch Adams is 1% what this character is, he should also be at the Hague. Interestingly, uh, the real Patch Adams once told uh, Roger Ebert at something called a Conference on World Affairs, which I love the idea that there was something with that title. They were having a, a that, special... That was the Hague. They were bringing, yeah, they were bringing right. Patch Adams yeah. to stand yeah, trial. Uh, yeah, Roger Ebert and Patch Adams were on, you know, they were... Ebert was leading the prosecution. That's, that's right. Uh, so he told Roger Ebert, I hate this movie. And then during a speech in 2010 at the Mayo Clinic, Patch Adams said, the film promised to build our hospital none of the profits from the film ever came to us and so basically 40 years into this work we're still trying to build our hospital furthermore adam furthermore adam stated robin williams made 21 million dollars for four months of pretending to be me in a very simplistic version and did not give ten dollars to my free hospital patch adams the person would have if i had robin's money given all 21 million to a free hospital in a country where 80 million cannot get care all right all right that's speaking my language a bit. Roger Ebert, by the way, said in his column for the Chicago Sun-Times, and I quote, Patch Adams made me want to spray the screen with Lysol. This movie is shameless. It's not merely a tearjerker. It extracts tears individually by liposuction without anesthesia. It received two thumbs down on Siskel and Ebert with particular criticism directed towards the character of Patch, who was viewed as overbearing, obnoxious, and sanctimonious. You want to know something interesting? Uh... Gene Siskel died of cancer well, a few weeks after. Well, and, and I was going to bring that up. Co-host Gene Siskel said in what I believe was the last column he ever wrote. Oh, shit. <laughs> he said, I'd rather turn my head and cough than see any part of Patch Adams again. <laughs> he singled it out as the worst movie of 1998. It was the last film he gave a worst of to before his death in 1999. All right. I mean, that's a guy who knew what he was talking about at that moment. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I've read Roger Ebert's autobiography and he talks about, you know, the last weeks of recording with Gene Siskel and like Siskel's son helping him into the balcony set as he's suffering brain cancer, you know, a man in extreme pain. And uh, just imagine that you're him in that moment and you're watching Robin Williams. Your, your, your last column, you're, you're coming to the end of an, ex, of an esteemed career as one of America's great film critics. You've written on all the greats. You've written on Robert Altman. You've written on Orson Welles. You show up to work one last time to watch one last movie. And it's fucking Patch Adams. And Gene Siskel, when he was writing that column, knowing that he had a death sentence hanging over him, said, if I had a choice between a death sentence and watching Patch Adams again, and he chose the death sentence. I mean, RAP to a real one. Robin Williams clowns it up as a medical student who challenges the establishment in Patch Adams, an annoying and clawing critique of the impersonal way doctors treat their patients. The big problem with this film is that after very few minutes, William's behavior and sermonizing become so overbearing that anyone would settle for impersonal treatment rather than suffer his routines, which include wearing a makeshift clown nose. And the American Journal of Medicine has found that laughter increases secretion of catecholamines and endorphins, which in turn increases oxygenation of the blood, relaxes the arteries, speeds up the heart, decreases blood pressure, which has a positive effect on all cardiovascular and respiratory ailments, as well as overall increasing the immune system response. 
The film's biggest flaw is that if any of us saw a doctor approach us with William's attitude, we considered switching HMOs in a hurry. He's obnoxious, sanctimonious, and so is the film. This is another movie in which Robin Williams plays a character who's going to show us how to be a better human being, or at least as good as he is. That his character is based on a real person doesn't affect me in the least. I'd rather turn my head and cough than see any part of Patch Adams again. Oh, I'm completely in agreement with you there, Gene. <coughs> uh, let me tell you something. Earlier I said stepmom was too sentimental. Stepmom is hard-boiled compared to this film. Oh, this film is unforgivable. It is, Ooh. the Robin Williams character is so smarmy, so sanctimonious, Good. the word you used. You're absolutely right. If this guy came into my hospital room and started doing a tap right. dance with bedpans on his feet, I would call the cops. I don't want to, I don't, tr when I'm, when my life is in the hands of doctors, I don't want to see the little red clown yeah. nose, even if it does squeak when he... I'd, I'd like to call this film Punch Adams.